Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We're all familiar with the idea that as disciples we are fishers of men, casting the net of God's word for him to, to gather in all whom he would into his kingdom. Today's gospel suggests another image for us as disciples, that we're not only fishers of men, but perhaps also, in a sense, farmers of men, pushing the plow. Now, the context for this word from our Lord, it comes as he has set his face toward Jerusalem. He knows where he is going. He knows who he is and what he is about. He sees the destiny before him, and he is going fast toward that destiny. Meanwhile, uh, some other would-be disciples come up to our Lord, some eager beavers, right? They say, oh, Jesus, I would follow you. And the words that our Lord has to speak are a little bit harsh, stern, and maybe hard for us to hear. He says, listen, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If you're going to follow after me, it's going to be hard, troublesome, and toilsome. You may not even have a home. And he says, furthermore, to another one who wants to go and to bury his parents, he says, listen, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, come and follow me. Nothing can come between the master and his disciple, not even the commandment to honor your parents. Important as that is, not even the law can be put in between the Lord and his followers. He comes before all else. It's a hard word about the call and the cost of discipleship. But then Jesus summarizes and encapsulates this word with the last verse that we heard in our gospel reading. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And this got me thinking. It got me thinking about how Jesus uses all sorts of different metaphors in order to illuminate our relationship with him. He talks about, as we say, being fishers of men and what that looks like and how also we as the, the church, we are the light of the world. And as believers, you are the salt of the earth. And each of those different metaphors illuminates and elucidates different aspects of our discipleship and of our following after our Savior. But then I got to thinking, we don't often talk about how as disciples we are also farmers of men, that we are plowing in faith. I was wondering, what does plowing have to do with discipleship? That's the question I want to explore with you this morning. And I'll be honest, I am not a native plower or farmer, nor the son of a farmer. I'm from the suburbs, y'all. Uh, <laughs> A lot of what I've learned is from an author, a guy by the name of James Rebanks, who's a British farmer and shepherd, and he says that the plow is the king of the farm, and everything else dances around it. Again, I'm assuming it's a metaphor, but not knowing farms, I don't want to say whether it is or not for sure, right? And he says the key feature, the key feature of when you're plowing is that you need straight lines, right? You've got to have straight lines. Why? Because that's going to make the most use of your land. If you've got straight lines, then you're going to have the most efficient yield. You're going to have the, the best harvest. And so James Rebank says, if you want to have straight lines, you've got to have some sort of fixed point. You need a landmark that you're looking at, that you're able to, to guide your lines. But there's a danger there, he says. He recounts a young plowman he knew 
who was just getting started, was very zealous to be a farmer. He was very excited about his work, and he gets out there, and he remembers, okay, yes, I need to find a landmark out on the horizon by which I'm going to guide my plowing. And he does that. He sees this white speck out on the, the distant horizon, and he's going. He's just going after it, plowing, going all day, toiling. He's sweating, and finally, he gets to the end of the day and steps back to look at all of his labors and realizes that his furrows are zigzagged and crisscrossed all across his land. And he's just heartbroken. Why is that? And as he walks up and gets closer, he realizes that that white speck he saw on the horizon was a white cow that was wandering to and fro across the fields. <laughs> There's a caution there for us, see. As disciples, we need that fixed point. You need that landmark. But the world offers us nothing but moving targets, see? If you try to use as your landmark anything that the world offers to you, it's always going to leave you making crooked furrows of faith. If you say, well, what does the world have to say about what success is and what it means to lead a truly flourishing life, then you're going to be zigzagging back and forth. If we look to the world to give us a definition of beauty and what it means to have a beautiful soul and spirit, we're going to end up with those zigzags in our heart and soul because it is always changing and it's never going to be that kind of fixed truth of the beauty that you have in Christ. If we're looking to the world to tell us what does it mean to be cool, what does it mean to be in, what does it mean to be relevant, we're always going to be going back and forth like that poor young plowman chasing the cow because the world offers only moving targets. And it's even worse than that because we, if we use our own kind of sinful intuition, our human nature, our, our flesh to try and follow, if we go by our own lights, that too is unsatisfactory and unreliable. My mom used to always tell me that if you're going to trust your gut, just remember what your gut's filled with. Okay? <clears throat> I don't know if that's appropriate for a sermon or not, but there it is. Our own subjective feelings and, and intuitions are unreliable guides. What we need is that fixed point. And what do the scriptures say? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Keep your eye on the prize. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be given to you. See, as we pursue our Lord, as we make him and his word the one thing that stands, then everything else falls into place. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's something about when our eyes are fixed on our Lord Jesus, everything else around us starts to fall into place. When we seek him first, then the, the kingdom comes in its train. We need that landmark. We need that fixed love of our Lord, his promise. Because in the way of discipleship, as we're, we're going along following after our Lord, it is difficult. It is hard. We're going to find all sorts of things to, to lead us astray and that could send us on those crooked paths. We need to look to our Lord, the one who tells us who we truly are, the one who says that you belong to me, that your beauty, that your success, that your identity are wrapped up in me and not in the things of the world, not even in what you think you can say about yourself. Instead, who you are comes from Christ. He is our North Star. He is our fixed point. He's the landmark that we look to. When we think about what discipleship and plowing have to do with one another, to me, that's the first thing. We want those straight lines. We want to follow in the, the straight and narrow. And so we need that landmark of our Lord and his love. But as we think about the difficulties and the challenges of the way of faith, that brings up a second point of connection between plowing and, and following after Jesus. And that is that plowing is long, hard, tedious labor. 
Now, some of you who might be familiar with modern plowing think, oh, no, it's not really that bad. You hop in the tractor, you punch in the GPS, and it just goes. Turns out they didn't have it this way in Jesus' day. I don't know. It's crazy. Actually, I was reading about ancient plowing and what it would mean and what it would entail, and one of the things I came across is that if you were using those ancient methods and simply following after your horse or your oxen to plow up one acre of your field, just one acre, you would walk 10 miles 10 miles to plow one acre. You talk about getting your steps in, right? That's the way to do it. It's long, arduous, tedious labor. And how much more when it comes to our path of discipleship? It's not to say that it's not joyful. It's not to say that as we follow our Lord that it doesn't fill our hearts with peace. But at the same time, it is, as Friedrich Nietzsche said and Eugene Peterson took over, it is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Eugene Peterson says that's the essence of discipleship. He wrote a book with that title, and the, the subtitle of it was Discipleship in an Instant Society. You care to guess when he wrote that book? 1980, y'all. Fortunately, things are much better in 2022. How much more do we need this capacity to endure? to follow in that long obedience, looking to our Lord and working through those difficulties, those struggles, because there are so many discouragements and detractions and distractions along the way. That's why Jesus says, don't look back. There's so many things to, to pull our minds away, to pull our hearts away, to, to pull us away as we are walking in that way that leads to eternal life. We need that long obedience. And how do we do that? as we're coming across all these trials along the way, as we're hitting stumps and stones. Well, here I have to go to another one of my favorite modern philosophers, uh, the greatest college coach in the state of Michigan. I'm talking about Mel Tucker, of course. Those fighting words? Maybe for some of you, okay. Um, in any case, Mel Tucker, the coach of Michigan State, he loves a good catchphrase. He loves to have these sort of, these cultural catchphrases for his team, and one that he's been using a lot lately. So he says, we need to keep chopping, keep chopping, like you're chopping wood, right? It just, it takes what it takes. You just got to keep going after it. And similarly, we might say that in this long obedience, we just got to keep plowing. We just keep after it. When we come, to, come across the stones and the stumps, when we hit those roots along the way, we keep plowing, following after our Lord Jesus. And the scripture gives us this promise that in due season, we will reap if we do not lose heart. See, plowing is fundamentally an act of hope. And that's the third point of connection I want to make between plowing and discipleship. First of all, that you need that fixed point. You need that landmark looking to our Lord. Secondly, that it is long, hard, steady labor. And thirdly, that plowing, as with discipleship, is fundamentally an act of hope. This was vividly illustrated in an episode of the show The Chosen, which some of you guys have heard me mention before. The Chosen is this powerful cinematic depiction of our Lord's life and ministry, especially along with the disciples. And it's based in the scriptures. It uses some holy conjecture, I like to call it, along the way. But there's one episode in my mind especially, which is based on the gospel reading that we heard today. And it starts out, we find a couple of the disciples, James and John, and what are they doing? They're plowing a field. Jesus had told them, guys, I want you to plow this field. Doesn't tell them why, doesn't tell them whose field it is, but when Jesus tells you to plow a field, you plow a field, right? 
So they're plowing this field, and as they are plowing, they are complaining, they are lamenting, they are talking about all the things that they would rather. They would rather clean out the, clean out the, the stables after a long weekend. They would rather mend all the holes in the sails of their boats. They would even rather wrestle a swordfish. And the other disciple says, you know a swordfish has a sword on its face, right? Even so, I would rather wrestle a swordfish. Then what? Then plow that field? No, they say. Then be caught dead with any Samaritans. See, they were in Samaritan country. And that, they would never want to have anything to do with those ancient enemies of God's people. Well, as the episode unfolds, we find out that these disciples were unwittingly tilling up, plowing a Samaritan's field. And when they find this out, they're livid. They're frustrated with the Lord Jesus. They say, Lord, how could you? Don't you know these are our rivals? These are our opponents. These are the ones who, who hate us. How could we possibly do something for them? What are you trying to teach us? Jesus says, that's a good question. What do you think I was trying to teach you with this? And they say, oh, I don't know, to help. He says, is that it? Just to be helpful or to be better farmers? No. He says this. It was to show you that what we're doing here is to last generations. It's sowing seeds that will have a lasting impact for lifetimes. It's sowing seeds that will have a lasting impact for lifetimes. Even among these hated Samaritans, God is reaping a harvest among them. Don't you see, brothers and sisters, that when you are going out and following in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus, following in those furrows of faith, it is an act of hope as we are plowing and going in that long, hard labor, not knowing where we are going, but trusting that he goes before us. Uh, to repeat that wonderful prayer that we prayed earlier in the service. It says, Lord, you've called your servants to ventures of which we cannot see the ending, by paths as yet untrodden, through perils unknown. So give us faith to go out with good courage, not knowing where we go, but only that your hand is leading us and your love supporting us. We're following in the way of faith as an act of hope, plowing after our Lord Jesus. And up here in northern Michigan, we should get that, right? Uh, we're farming people. We have orchards of cherry trees around here. And some of you know this. How long does it take for a cherry tree to start bearing fruit? Like five, seven, even ten years to start getting fruit from the cherry tree. That's why it lifts my heart every time I see one of our local farmers planting new trees. Like, what an act of hope, not even knowing if you're going to see the fruits of your labors. So also for us, as we follow in the way that leads to eternal life, as we plow after our Lord Jesus, we do so in the prospect of a future fruitfulness that we do not know whether or not we will ever see it. Now, this past week, we had what I think is both an example and a challenge to us on this score. And of course, I'm talking about the Supreme Court overturning the Roe versus Wade uh, verdict. And for many of us, this is an opportunity of thanksgiving, not for us to, to spike, to go on a victory lap and be like the disciples and say, ha ha, Lord, now can you bring down fire on all of our opponents? No, it's, but it's an opportunity for humble thanksgiving to the Lord, for the, reversing what we believe was something that was, was unjust, a moral stain on our society, even as slavery was before. But that also brings up for us what I think is the challenge, see. 
We can be thankful to God that through all that hard labor of five decades of, of prayers and struggle and toil, that now it is bearing fruit in this way. But it's also a challenge, see, because for us as believers, for us as the church, it's a chance for us even more to step up and to be the church. There's many who say, oh, wait, so all you Christians, you just wanted this overturned. You just wanted this freedom taken away. And now for all the women who are going to have babies that they had unplanned for, now you're just going to say, too bad for you. Far be it from us as the body of Christ to shrink back in this moment. Instead, it's an opportunity to keep plowing after our Lord Jesus, even more so to show love and compassion to those who are in need, to continue supporting those wonderful ministries that have been plowing all these years, like our crisis pregnancy centers, to come alongside them, to support them, and even, yes, to, to provide opportunities for fostering children, even for adoption. What a chance for us as the people of God in our discipleship to plow after our living Lord. Amen? Listen, to do so in this way that leads to eternal life, it's going to be hard and difficult and trying. You're going to have days where you feel less like the plowman, less like the, the farmer pushing the plow, and more like the oxen that have the yoke over your necks, and that you feel weary and heavy laden as you are seeking to follow our Lord. And so his invitation to you and me is to come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I will give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, Jesus says, and my burden is light. See, he's the Lord who has gone before you and me, who took that yoke of the crossbeam on his shoulders. He's the one who was plowed under, breaking the ground for you and me, going down into the dirt like a, a seed that was sown in death, but now is risen and bears fruit eternally. Because he was already plowed under before you, now you and me can plow after him in hope and faith. We don't need to break new ground for the kingdom of God. He already has broken it for us. We don't need to come up with, with new avenues and opportunities in order to, to follow our Lord Jesus. He has set the table for us. His summons and call is for us as it was for those first disciples. Follow me. Follow me. Keep plowing. And keep heart, knowing that in due season we will reap. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand for prayer.